Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. You may have already sampled sake, probably the best-known Japanese alcoholic beverage. But the popularity of Japanese whiskey may soon rival Japan's most familiar drink. And most of the local James Beard Award nominees are restaurants and chefs featuring Asian cuisine. Plus, from Back Bay to Watertown, local Black-owned restaurants are drawing new attention. Our food and wine contributors are sipping and savoring those stories and more. Joining me in the studio, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. And Amy Traverso, senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of the national public television series Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hello, Amy. Hey, Callie. Well, I'm going to jump right in with the uh, Japanese uh, whiskey connection, Jonathan, because I didn't even know it was a thing until a good friend of mine started uh, uh, sipping it. And I guess it's rivaling beloved our beloved traditional whiskeys that we know of. Um, but it's huge now. So when we talk about Japanese whiskey, we're talking about potentially two things. One is traditional Japanese rice whiskey that's aged in um, aged in oak barrels, aged in wood, like traditional whiskey. That's one thing. That's a, that's got a long, long ancient tradition in Japan. But generally, when we're talking about what you're talking about today, the the Japanese whiskeys that are so hot, um, we're talking about um, more traditional style. They're 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 European style. They're um, some of them are um, are like single malt whiskeys that that taste and are extremely similar to a to a scotch whiskey um, a lot of them are blended whiskeys um, one of the one of the most popular ones and I think if people are interested in trying some of these some of these uh, Japanese whiskeys um, Suntory is the is the one, the one of the biggest distillers one of the biggest producers of all kinds of uh, spirits in Japan um, Suntory makes a blended a uh, blended Japanese whis- whiskey called Toki, which is very light, um, very light, very smooth. It's going to remind people of a of a blended of a blended Scotch uh, whiskey. I've uh, tasted a little bit. I'm not a whiskey person, but mm. I can see how people who would be are interested in it. And of course, you know about these things because at the Boston Wine School, you do spirits as mm-hmm. well as wine. Just mm-hmm. want to just mm-hmm. want to point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, for people I know who like the traditional whiskeys, many of them are now drinking the Japanese yes. whiskey. And and a lot of what um, and we see this a lot in the in the wine world, the food world, the spirits world. You know, we see other cultures and other people as a market and as a thing that we can sell all of these things to, which of course is how it, you know, how it starts out. But eventually, once you become a wine lover, once you become a food lover, once you become a whiskey lover, you want to, you want to flip the script a little bit. You know, you want to go from being merely um, a consumer, merely a consumer market to being a producer 
um, on your own of, of, of the thing which, which, which you love as well. So it's kind of a natural, kind of a natural flow. Well, I just want to note, Amy, that uh, along with the Japanese whiskey trend, uh, wow, it seems that um, we've seen this coming, that Asian cuisine is really at a high point now. Mm-hmm. And I'm just noting that because of our local winners of the uh, James Beard semifinalists, well, not winners, they're, they're nominated mm-hmm. and they're semifinalists, but many of them are Japanese or are Asian. So we have Yunnan, uh, which is cuisine, uh, Chinese, that's mm-hmm. in the South End, Sakali, which is Malaysian, um, sadly, Tanum, which was uh, Philip yeah. Philippine X, is now closed, but they still got uh, nominated. And um, uh, La Royale, Peruvian Pagu, we know Pagu. I've I've put uh, all of Tracy's children through school there. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> Japanese tapas uh, and Red Rose out in I guess it's Lowell. Lowell. Uh, and then we have the Sakata. I never heard of this. I live in Cambridge. Sakata. Coffee bar that's Vietnamese, and the nightshade noodle bar is French and Vietnamese. So, what say you about yeah. what's happening? Well, I think in some ways, James, the James Beard Foundation is they're making up a lot of ground. They have a, a backlog of restaurants that didn't get acknowledgement over the decades. You know, James Beard for many years was sticking to the kind of focus on classical French and and Italian and some high-end Asian food when they were handing out their awards. And it was, um, it and, and they were accused of being too clubby, too, you know, boys club, too white, too all of it. And so I think the, they're, the, the the awards are really trying to represent, you know, a wider range of foods and bring uh, our awareness to all the great food, not just the classical European food. So, so they are. Um, I think there's like such a a deep bench of talented chefs who haven't gotten acknowledgement. I think I hope that in the future, because the James Beard Awards are like the the Academy Awards of the food world, and I think you know running a a casual restaurant is very different from running, you know, a high-end restaurant. They have different demands. And I think kind of like the Michelin Guide, hopefully eventually uh, the Beard Awards will maybe start to um, have awards in categories that are more nuanced rather than just throwing everything together, a fine dining restaurant with like a counter service, you know, because I just think for the consumer, it's it's useful to know what you're get, what you're, what they're talking about. But certainly in the interest of of highlighting amazing talent, whatever the price point, whatever the style of service, it's so great that, you know, the tent has gotten wider. Now, does this also indicate our palates have changed and and maybe they're just catching up, but we've already moved on because all of these restaurants are pretty popular? Yeah. I mean, I think Boston in the past has had a reputation for being a little bit slow to embrace new flavors, new, new to the majority. They're not new flavors. They're ancient flavors, but new to sort of the mass uh, population of eaters. Um, and I think there has been a lot more acceleration of people kind of being more um, interested in exploring new flavors and new cuisines that they may not be familiar with. And also, of course, Boston's become more diverse. So there's a bigger population of people who know this food. And so, yeah, I think and I think Asian food in particular, I think Boston's a good market for it. There's a lot of international students who are here. So that really gives you that base. You know, certainly I live near Alston and the number of amazing Asian restaurants, you know, from across Asia um, has just 
exploded. Um, so, and then of course in Lowell, you know, you've Red Rose has such a huge Cambodian population. So it's great to see that acknowledged. Um, yeah. So, and, and the Philippinex food, which is really just starting to get some critical mass in Boston. It's still pretty early, but you know, Filipinos are the fourth largest, you know, immigrant group. Um, but the food has not been represented in Boston. So that's exciting. Okay. Now, speaking of going back to old flavors, but bringing them up forward and new, pistachio. Oh, I I am so behind. <laughs> you know, I love pistachio. And you, you were kind enough to bring Jonathan and me some pistachio lattes, which we're loving. <laughs> you know, they're clearly marketing agencies have gotten into this. You know, we're all going to push this. So obviously pumpkin spice is the cliche. I noticed this past fall they were really trying to create a, a, a cider donut moment. And I was kind of rolling my eyes. But, oh, my God, am I behind this one? <laughs> I love So things to just look out for very quickly. Uh, pistachio lattes. If you have any plans to go to Disney World, they are now doing a pistachio cherry Dole Whip. Dole Whip being like such yeah. a signature dessert there. Um, uh, in the North End, at, at a lot of the cafes that also serve alcohol, they drink pistachio martinis, which are delicious. Um, Lady M Confections, which makes those meal crepe cakes. They're on Newbury Street. They're doing a pistachio cake that I actually had for my birthday birthday party and it was amazing so look around for these pistachio flavored things they will make you happy and there is a, a sort of pistachio equivalent of nutella that is made in italy it is quite expensive it's called pistachiosa um and uh but you know it is it, they have it at formaggio kitchen it is so good i mean it's just amazing all right, now speaking of old things coming back, Boston Wine Expo coming back strong. Boston Wine Expo. Is Not to be confused with the Boston Food and Wine Festival. Right, the Boston, Boston yeah. Food and Wine Festival is at the Boston Harbor Hotel, and that's like a months-long undertaking. Um, yeah, this is, this, is, this is pretty exciting. Um, you know, Boston uh, Wine Expo uh, was founded in 1991, and um, pretty quickly grew into the largest consumer wine show in the entire world. Mm. And uh, boy, did we have it great for a few years. Um, I mean, it, it you know took place every year in the month of February. You know, so just like and you don't have to be a wine lover to feel this way about February, but just when you feel like there's really nothing to live for, you know, here comes the Boston Wine Expo. Hundreds of wineries, thousands of wines. Just a just a great mind blowing experience. I want to just let everybody listen to this is a commentator describing the Boston Wine Expo during its peak years in 1995. The success of this annual event allows many of us to indulge in some great gourmet food and vintage wine. If you have never attended the Boston Wine Expo, try and get there next year. Your taste buds won't be the same. There you go. <laughs> that says it all. Is it just me or did he sound a little drunk? <laughs> so and so sadly, like so many things, um, you know, it got very, very big. Um, it it grew very, very shallow. Uh, it grew a little strange. So four years ago, it it went away. Um, in the you know, w- with the onslaught of COVID two years ago, no one really particularly noticed. You know, because who in the world was doing any kind of wine shows? Absolutely no one. So now it's um, Boston Wine Expo is back. Um, it's the weekend of March uh, 25 and 26. Um, this is going to be in a smaller footprint, expecting about 100 different producers at, 
at this stage um, in terms of this iteration of Boston Wine Expo. But but um, and this will be an interesting experiment for all of us to see um, how people uh, negotiate, how people operate in this large wine fair environment. Now, let me just ask this question, because uh, happening at the same time are these surveys that say millennials that we thought were drinking a lot of wine, not drinking so much. Uh, So are the boomers holding up the industry or, you know, what is the impact of, for example, a Boston Wine Expo? Well, well, hopefully, hopefully it's going to be something. I mean, what you're referring to, Callie, is... um, um, and 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 unless you're in the wine business, you probably should never heard of Silicon Valley Bank. But they are an entity. They they have a lot of, of wine-based funds. They're investors in vineyards and wineries. Come out with a really uh, big annual report every year. And what their report is indicating is that wine, as a as a as a, a segment of this spirits market, is is losing uh, young people. So this survey indicated that of of millennials who drink some kind of alcohol, 35% of those drinking millennials drink zero wine. Because they're drinking Japanese whiskey. Because they're, they're drinking yeah. Japanese. They're drinking <laughs> Japanese whiskey. Yeah. They're drinking, mm-hmm. you know, they're drinking. Pistachio martini. Yeah. Pistachio martini. Right. They're, no, drinking, right. they're, they're drinking yeah. Pabst Blue Ribbon in a can. Um, but this is something that, you know, this is something that wine, you know, that wine is seeing, Um and you know, wine always kind of struggles with, um, you know, doesn't 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 exactly have a youth image, or a youth culture, and so wine always struggles. You know, wine's a sign of adulthood. Okay, well, um, some of those people who are not drinking wine, uh, for sure, are drinking Filipinx breakfast sandwiches, <laughs> um, Amy, because breakfast sandwiches are big anyway. But they this are. is real new here. Yes, yes. So um, there is a really great restaurant um, called uh, Johnny Boy, and it's uh, it's actually a pop up, so it's still kind of in development. Um, but but follow them on social um, because you want to have the sandwich. It is a chicken adobo sandwich uh, that is has pancakes as the uh, as the bun and banana ketchup um, with a fried egg. Um, uh, and then um, there's also they they have other fried egg sandwiches on brioche buns. There's there's various sandwiches. They're all delicious. Um, and you know Jeff uh, Almendras, who is the owner of Johnny Boy, he named it after his dad. You know he really talks about how Filipinx food is the ultimate fusion food. There's so many influences um, from you know from the history, Spanish, American, you know, Chinese, there's so many. So, you know, to experience the food is to really be tasting the whole globe. Um, Another uh, pop-up restaurant, Kuya's Cooking, is another one to to be on the lookout for. They are doing some really fabulous pop-up dinners. Um, They also do catering and sort of prepared meals. So um, follow them on Instagram to kind of see what they're up to. Sadly, of course, we lost Hanam, but uh, hopefully maybe that team will come back in another form. So that's that's something that's very exciting in Boston and, and underrepresented to date. Um, I also wanted you to comment on um, uh, someone who took it upon himself to to refute criticism of Boston food, which I think this, you know, I think uh, said author, I'm looking for the author's name right now, is correct because it used to be, in 
my recollection that Boston was kind of boring on uh, on the culinary scene, but not anymore. This yeah. is a hot place now. But, you know, dunking on Boston <laughs> as a food town is such an old and tired trope. Back in the 80s, Alan Richman at GQ wrote an article called The Boston Glob. And it was about how terrible the food scene was. This is I, I just feel like every decade somebody does that. And, of course, we all react because, you know, we're, we, we're, we like our city. Well, but, but at first we really couldn't say anything. But that's not true now. It's not true. I know. Back then they were like, okay, you're right. But Now, now, we, know, now we know why Bostonians are so surly and belligerent. Have you, ta- have you tasted this food? But, no, we deserve a lot more a lot more. Uh, a lot more praise now and I think you know we we've we have firmly shaken off that that Boston glob identity all right uh Jonathan you're all about uh drinking the uh summer wines and winter yes. just break out of the box okay so this is what I brought today so m- one of the things I love about wine is that when you smell it when you taste it when you drink it even though <clears throat> even though maybe we've transported the wine like 10,000 miles to where we are the beauty of it is that it can transport us back to the place, back to the farm, back to the time when we first tasted it. And one of the things that I really like to do um, is to is to drink uh, summery wines during winter, wines that are made in a summery place, wines that have this sort of summery attitude. So this is what I brought for us to taste uh, today. Um, this is from Sicily. And um, another trend that we're seeing in the wine world today is an openness. People are open to much more open to blended wines. Um, we generally think of blended wines as being more traditionally red wines, which is true. This is a blended white wine from two Sicilian grapes called called Zibibo, which in Italian means raisin, and then Catarato, um, which is our which is like our word cataract, but means waterfall. These are not grapes that are typically something that get exported here, right? You know, we're starting to see these now, but they're but but they're com- but they're completely new. I mean, I had I had heard of Catarato before. I had not heard of Zibibo before. It's so um, wonderful. I would drink this is. I could tell this would be very uh, food friendly. Yeah, and I love the flower. Like the the flower part of this wine would be great with like the fragrant. Um, those fragrant elements. I love it. All right, yep. now this is a Black History Month, and so um, there are a lot of restaurants that are being just highlighted around in our area uh, and other places, so that uh, folks, if they haven't sampled, uh, do. But I'm interested also in the fact that a number of these restaurants are um, featuring a diverse kind of cuisine, whatever mm. you might have in your mind that you think is is uh, you know. African American cuisine uh, is is broader than that, and I just want us to take a listen to Anais Lambert. Oh. She opened Cafe Sauvage in Boston's Back Bay with her husband in 2021. The menu is not just French cuisine only. We're bringing my African heritage on the menu with some African spices, like the roasted chicken. You can see we have some plantains, some stuff that you won't see anywhere else. So we're really mixing the flavor, mixing the people. It's really a multicultural spot where everybody's welcome. All right, so Amy, you had a big reaction. (laughs) I love this couple, Anaïs and Antoine Lambert. They moved here from Paris Cafe Sauvage is the coolest hang. Like, the food is great. You can stay there all day. They're the loveliest people, and they are just bringing a modern Parisian 
cafe to Boston. It's very cool. It's very much like what's happening in Paris right now. And they also just couldn't be more delightful. Um, another restaurant that I'm so excited about finally has opened Comfort Kitchen um, in Upham Corner. Um, it is it's it's been so hotly anticipated. This team, it's really a primary team of four partners. The chef is Quasi Qua, um, and they have done. They did a series of incredibly successful pop ups, and everybody's just been waiting for the brick and mortar. Um, the food is very much what they call global comfort food, and the thing that threads it all together is spice. So it's really following the spice roots that crisscross the globe. So that might mean a Senegalese. Uh, chicken stew with turmeric and coriander that chef serves with uh, cassava dumplings. Um, and so, you know, the, just Nepalese food, because one of the partners from Nepal, you're just going to get, but it, it's it's very much this comfortable neighborhood restaurant where everyone feels welcome. The food is warm. The service is warm. Really, really worth a visit. And it's uh, so, and we have so many examples across the African diaspora is what's happening here in the, in the two examples that you've mentioned and in many other restaurants that are that are just open and are around and people can sample the, the menu particularly during this month. Yeah, absolutely. Deborah first at The Globe did a, an article about her about a hundred uh, naming a hundred black owned restaurants around the city. Some of my favorites, Cafe Sauvage, Mita, which is Italian Douglas Williams, he's amazing. Comfort Kitchen, JP Roti Shop, um, uh, Jamaican Me Hungry, you know, and Daryl's Corner Kitchen and Bar. So that's a lot of different styles of food, um, all worth exploring, especially not just this month, all year round, really. All right, we're going to close up a few seconds here. Um, I'm going to get you, uh, Jonathan, to tell me some of your favorite. Um, this is based off of an article I saw. Um, warm kind of winter mm, red wines okay. that you might, uh, and maybe your favorite, just name your favorite, good for this time. We're already going to drink the summer one. <laughs> so, But if there's a red one that you would suggest. You know, to stay with this idea of drinking, you know, wines from warm climate regions when you're in a cold climate place like we are right now, I mean, I just, I, I just love everything from the Cote de Rhone. We're talking about we're talking about southern France. We're talking about the Mediterranean arc of southern France, where the Rhone River um, um, empties into um, the Mediterranean. Great wine. I mean, I mean, Chateauneuf du Pape is probably the most famous, <clears throat> the most famous wine from the Côte de Rhone. But there are other little towns that are much less famous and much less expensive, like the town of Gigondas. So, so, so Côte de Rhone wine is all about compatibility all about you know it is, it is a blended wine it's about making different grapes and different flavors go together and you're absolutely right it's a great um, great great food wine well we're gonna ha enjoy all of your suggestions i love having you two here um and we'll see you back in these seats with more to say about food and wine soon great great, great to be here thank you thanks Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Amy Traverso is the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of the national public television series Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Jenny Firm. 
Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.